Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And for those of you at home, online, we're so thankful that you've joined us this morning, and uh, we welcome you. We're so glad to be together and dive into God's Word together. Many of you know that uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the San Francisco Bay Area uh, is a melting pot unto itself. And as people would come to our house uh, in the Bay Area, our house became a melting pot of beautiful people. We'd have people from literally all over the world, dear friends from India and Africa and Asia, a lot of Europe because my mother is uh, French, a lot of family and friends would come and, and they would just hang out at our house. And it really was a train station. People would just show up, who, who knows when, and they would just come and hang out and want to be fed. And uh, so they would come to our house and enjoy fellowship. And then there would come a time in the, in the middle of the evening uh, where my French mother uh, would uh, call us to the table and she would say, A table, a table. It's time to come to the table. And she would have this wonderful feast for us. Oftentimes she would cook lamb, part of her Moroccan heritage. Come to the table. All are welcome. And so we'd all sit around the table and all peoples from all nations, and it really was a taste of heaven. I think what eternity is going to be like when we're at the banquet table of our Lord Jesus Christ and supping with him. As we enter into the Gospel of Luke, what I love about it and what we've seen in our studies of it is that it's a call for all to come to the table. All are welcome here at the table with Jesus. It's an invitation that the gospel, the good news, euangelion, the good news is for all people. Just like the angel declared to the shepherds in Luke 10. Luke 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For who? For all people. Everyone. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born Unto you, all people are invited. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. The good news is the Savior has showed up. The anticipated Messiah has come to save us. He's not going to come and save us what they hoped for, which was, please come and conquer Rome. No, he's going to save us by dying on the cross for our sin. He's going to save us. We owed a debt to God. Our sin has led to death. And Jesus came in and he died on the cross for our sin. But good news, he rose again on the third day. And the best news is this, that any and all people who would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, would believe that he died on the cross for our sin, would believe that he is Lord, and they receive him into their hearts and say, Lord, be Lord of my life, my Savior. Here's the good news for all people. You shall be saved. You see, all that yuck, all that sin will be cleansed. You will be like we've experienced this beautiful snow. You will be washed white as snow. Forgiven before God. The invitation from Jesus is come to the table. 
Come, welcome all people and sup with him. Eat with him. And to eat in, in 2,000 years ago, to have supper together, it wasn't just a quick bite at McDonald's and you're together and you go. No, no. You come and you enter into fellowship. You come to the table and sup with Jesus like Revelation 3 and you enter into relationship with him. And so he's saying, come into my fellowship. Come, be forgiven. Come, be restored, be renewed. Come, know me more. Come to my table. Enjoy my banquet. I am the bread of life. Be filled on me. I am the life. And here's the good news. There's not one person in this whole world that is not on the guest list. Everybody is invited to the banquet. The question for all of us is, will we, will we receive the invitation? Let's pray for that this morning as we get into the Gospel of Luke. Heavenly Father, I just praise you for your amazing grace upon us. I praise you and thank you that you've invited each and every one to the table. And so, Father, do your work in our hearts this morning. Teach us out of the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for this Gospel, this good news for us. And Lord, would you draw each and every one to your table to know you more, to fall in love with you, to receive the bread of life. In your beautiful and precious name, amen. Well, it really been a time, as Dr. Luke is, is writing this, it's a time where we're experiencing uh, incredible separation from God. There's 400 years of silence between the Testaments. And Luke is writing this book for us. Luke also wrote the book of Acts that we studied a little while ago. Luke was Greek. We find in the scriptures that he was a doctor indeed. He was a companion with Paul. That Paul probably met him on his first missionary journey. And then on his second missionary journey, we find that he was traveling with Paul. And so hearing more and more about who Jesus was. The, um, we find in Acts, about Acts 16, the whole time he had been talking about all the acts of the apostles. And then you get into Acts 16 and then he's like, and we went and did this. And so you really get the sense that he was joining them. Again, writing in a time where the people of Israel just are not hearing from God, I think they're feeling hopeless. I think they're feeling lost. Will we ever be delivered from this oppression? They aren't experiencing God's presence very much, even in the temple, Herod's temple that was built at the time. So Luke brings us his gospel, this very first part. And one of the things that he does as he is setting the table for us and preparing the table is he sets out the centerpiece of certainty. He wants us to know all about Jesus and he wants us to come to a place that the centerpiece of certainty is placed out that we can know for sure all of these things that took place were true. 
And in the first four verses, he really lays that out for us. We went and met. We went and met with the eyewitnesses, with the servants. We investigated. We want to give you an orderly account. We want you to know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. See, Dr. Luke, he wasn't an eyewitness. He didn't hang out with Jesus. But he was about to investigate and do a thorough search of who Jesus was. It would be orderly, mostly chronological, very historical, clear. He used classical Greek as he's writing. He was an intellectual, someone you could trust, as someone who did thorough study, and he would go out. You see, we're not, we're not called to just be dumb Christians, to live in blind faith. No, we seek understanding. We want to we know Jesus more. We want to know all that he did. And so we should continue to search the scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures. But here's the truth. Even in all of your study, even in all of your searching, just knowing all these things, that's not what changes your heart. That is not what changes your heart. You see, the Lord is saying, come to the table. Surrender your heart unto me. Come and receive me as your Lord and Savior. Let me be Lord of your life. And then as you receive the Holy Spirit, he is going to open up your eyes to the scriptures and all that is true. He's going to change you from the inside out. We are a new creation in Christ. Come to the table. Receive that. Know, know that I am God. So don't, don't stop searching the scriptures and knowing him more. But just know it comes, the change of the heart comes with that surrender. Dr. Luke brings us to this place and he uses all these medical terms. He says, we went to the eyewitnesses. And that term is, is the term autopsy. Autop- we dug deep. We opened it all up. We wanted to see what was inside and exactly what happened. And so we went and we performed an autopsy on all these things that took place. We went and met with the servants. The servant word there is used as one who is an under rower on a boat. In the medical field, that term would be used as someone who's an intern in the hospitals, a doctor. We went and met with those who were interns, servants, walking with, people who saw. And so I bring all of this to you in the first four verses so that you will have certainty, the centerpiece of certainty on what is going on in life. Oh, dear Theophilus, I want you to know these things. Well, who's Theophilus? Theophilus means lover of God. And so some people go, well... Maybe this was written to all those who were wanting to to follow God, love God. And so it's a message of encouragement to the Theophiluses out there, the lovers of God. I, I think that could be partly true, but I really do think it's a real person. And here's the deal. In the Roman Empire, half of the Roman Empire were slaves. Do you know that? Half of the Roman Empire... 
And the slaves were actually, many of them were well-educated. They were tutors, teachers. Many were doctors. And so the wealthy Romans would actually hire personal doctors under themselves who would be considered their slaves. I think Dr. Luke was one of those servants, one of those slaves, to Theophilus, eventually set free, no longer a slave. But I think Theophilus started to love God. And I think Theophilus was actually the one who financially said, hey, go perform this autopsy. I'm going to give you the money. And so Dr. Luke is reporting back. Oh, let me tell you all that is going on. Lee Strobel is a great example of this. He was this Chicago newsman. And he went out, and his wife became a Christian, and he just didn't believe it. He was an atheist. He's like, I'm going to disprove all this stuff. You are into some crazy stuff, dear wife. I'm going to disprove it. And so he won. He met with all the historians and all the theologians, and he spent years going to disprove Jesus and do a thorough search an autopsy so that people can know it's all fake. And you know what happened to Lee Strobel? He fell in love with Jesus. Couldn't disprove it. Because when he came to know the truth, it was like, oh my gosh. And then he surrendered his heart to Jesus. And it wasn't just the knowledge again. It was God got a hold of his heart, changed him forever. And now he goes around the world preaching about how much Jesus loves you and that he's the Savior. That's good news. And he pours it out. And so for us in our Christian journey, as we come and as we set the table, may we confidently set the centerpiece of certainty. You can know that Jesus is your Savior. You can know all the things that are written in the Scriptures are true. Let me set them out for you. As we move into the text, as we continue on, we're introduced to Zechariah, who is a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, who comes from the Aaronic lineage. She's priestly lineage, pure. And we're introduced to the miracle son, John, who is John the Baptist. And this family will prepare the table for the guest of honor, Jesus. But before that, what God's going to do, he's going to prepare their hearts. He's going to prepare Zacharias and Elizabeth first before they prepare the table. We're introduced to them during a time of Herod. Again, historical. They're priestly. And what we're told about them is they are righteous and just. They are good in the sight of God. You see, God knew their hearts. God knew all about them. It wasn't just religious activity for them. It was we really love the Lord. And that's how they're described. But there was a heartbreaking wound in their lives. Look at verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Dr. Luke gives us a medical reason right into the middle of this painful wound. You see, 2,000 years ago, to be childless, that was always connected with sin. There must be some sin in your life. You must not be righteous. 
There must be some spiritual flaw in you. And it was in a shame culture that would be shame, shame, shame. And the looks that Elizabeth and Zachariah must have received. Can you feel that ache? Dr. Luke wants us to feel it. He wants us to know the the burden and the heaviness and the pain and the suffering and living in a community like that. And he takes it even deeper. He's saying they can't, she was barren. They can't even have a child. She's beyond the years of being able to do that. And it says she's, they are very old. The old King James says they were well stricken in years. You guys can go ahead and point out those in this room who might be well stricken in years. Again, there's no hope of a child. No hope of a child. Living in hopeless time, silence from God for 400 years. Can you feel that? This is the setting. But we get some beautiful hope, even in the names of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias means God remembers. And Elizabeth means oath of God. God remembers an oath of God. You bring them together. This couple who lives in shame and in hopelessness, you bring them together, and their name together means God remembers his oath. He is a covenant God. And he is going to bring forth a Messiah who will be the Savior. God remembers his oath and his promises. And there's going to be one who's going to prepare the way for the Son of God. And that's going to be John the Baptist, your child. God remembers oath. That name combined, growth. He's going to grow them in their faith. He's going to grow them in an amazing trust. Their name gives them hope. It's amazing how God works in the middle of this circumstance. There's over 20,000 priests. 20,000 priests, and they're on rotation, and there's only a once-in-a-lifetime shot that you would actually be selected to go in, into the holy place and offer the incense unto the Lord. And all of a sudden it came. He was selected. And he got to go before the Lord. So Zechariah goes to the temple. I wanted to show you a picture of the temple. And he goes before the altar to burn incense before the Lord. And verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord, Gabriel, shows up. Gabriel, strong man. Gabriel warrior of God, hero of God. Gabriel, the one who would come before Mary. Gabriel, the one who would come before Daniel. There's only two angels named in the scriptures, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel shows up. He was always speaking forth salvation. 
Gabriel shows up. Don't be afraid. A son is going to be born. He's going to be a delight to you. You're going to call him his name John. Many are going to rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is what is happening. Zechariah is terrified by this angel. And he's hearing these words. And the preparation for the table is taking place. You see, John the Baptist is going to be the voice in the wilderness. He's going to be the one who is preparing the way for the people, for the main guest, Jesus. He's going to be great, even by his miracle birth. He's not to have any fermented wine. He's a Nazarite, like a Nazarite, like Samson was. Don't be drunk on wine, Ephesians 5 says to us, but be what? Be filled, be drunk on the Spirit of God. And guess what? John the Baptist, from the beginning of time, he was filled with the Spirit, amazing, to do the work of God, to help prepare the way for Jesus. He will bring back people of Israel to love God. He will go before the Lord, preparing this table, drawing people in wisdom and righteousness. This is John the Baptist. This is good news. This is a fulfillment of God keeping his covenant and all that he declared in the prophecies that came before to make a people ready, all people, all nations invited to the table. That's good news. Zechariah would have known these words for sure. It's the most natural segue, you've got to understand, from the Old Testament, the Gospel of Luke, and these words that we just heard. The most natural segue from the Old Testament into the New is these words that were just spoken about John the Baptist. You have a promise in the Old Testament, and then you have a promise fulfilled in the new. You see, Zechariah would have known this prophecy. It comes out of my favorite prophet, the Italian mafia prophet, Malachi. Malachi 3. Some, some call him Malachi. Malachi 3 says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come saying, here comes the Lord God Almighty. This is going to come true. And then Malachi 4.4 starts off giving all that we just read. There's one who will prepare the way. Wow, this is good news. Zachariah is hearing this again, confused, wondering how it's all over. This is amazing. My son is going to set the table for the Messiah, Jesus. We've been longing for this. How are we preparing the table for the guest of honor, Jesus? And how is God working on your hearts? preparing you as you come to the table and sup with him. God is doing a great work in in John the Baptist. He's doing it with Zachariah and Elizabeth. 
And as he's hearing these words, what happens is he's serving up all this good news. The angel is. Zechariah had been praying for a son probably for years. And as a priest, not only would he have been praying for himself for a son, but he would have been praying for the Messiah to come, for the people of Israel. That's what he would have been praying. And here's the truth. Both are fulfilled. The angel Gabriel is giving him this good news. Life-changing news. God's promises, his covenant. God remembers his oath. And as Zechariah is hearing this, he says, thank you. Thank you, Gabriel, for this good news. Would you set that good news on my dishes of doubt? How can this be? I am an old man. How can this be? Dishes of doubt. And Gabriel says, how can this be? I'm Gabriel. Verse 20, I stand in the presence of God. You have been praying for this, praying for this. And what I speak to you is good news. But you will be silent and not able to speak until this happens because you did not believe my words. You see, this is reflective of the people of Israel. This is reflective of the silence of God for 400 years. The people of Israel were supposed to proclaim the goodness of God and who he was. Were they doing that? No. God's silent for 400 years. Unbelief of the people of God. Zechariah is still living there in that place of unbelief. You will be silent. You were supposed to come out. As you would come out of the temple, you were supposed to come out and you were supposed to give the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. That was supposed to be the blessing. But he came out in silence. We think the game charades started at this point. Like, here's what's happening. He's got to do all this, you know, movie. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't proclaim the blessing. He would be silent. God's doing a work on Zechariah's heart. I think he's teaching him to, to be obedient, to trust. I think he's putting him in a place of saying, listen, God has spoken. Now be quiet and know that I am God. Be still and know who I am. Everything that you have been praying for is coming to fulfillment. Live out your name. God remembers his oath. Do you wrestle with doubt? I do. Thomas would be thankful that you wrestle with doubt. It would be like him. Jesus, I need to see some scars. You need to prove it to me. We wrestle with doubt. The Lord understands the wrestle. But here's the deal. He doesn't want us to stay in this place. 
doubting him because it leads to a it leads to a life of unbelief. It goes deeper than just a little doubt, but it leads to unbelief. Ben Patterson says sometimes we get stuck in unbelief because we have scars from an old wound and we can't get out of that. We're frozen in this place of unbelief. And so it's kind of like the guys on the road to Emmaus. They hear the good news, they Jesus rose again, and they're filled with joy, but they're, they're just like, how can it be? It's like the joy is almost too overwhelming. It seems like Zechariah preferred the safety of doubt over the risk of disappointment. We can oftentimes live in unbelief, and, and we don't room for God. And so we stay stuck there. We pray to the Lord, but we don't really believe that he's going to answer our prayers. You know, you wonder for Zechariah, he's saying, it can't be true. I'm an old man. There's no room really in that statement, is there, for God to do his work. What, what was Zechariah doing all these years in praying to God, is he praying to a wall, for goodness sakes? Or is he praying to the living God? What's he praying for? God hears our prayers. And he meets us in our unbelief and our doubt. I'm an old man. Ben Patterson says, Unbelief is always claustrophobic. Its world is no bigger than the person who is refusing to believe. It's the cramped quarters of the spirit. There's never much room for God. Are we leaving room for God? Or are we staying stuck in our unbelief? There's a man named Bob Pierce. He was director for, he got World Vision started. And he would travel all over the world in Latin America and Africa and Asia. And he would see the incredible hunger that was taking place there. Children with distended stomachs and just mothers who couldn't provide food and just the cry and the ache of starvation and families literally starving to death. And he would get so frustrated, so angry and wanted to feed these children. He would get to a place where he would go, God, I need to do something. And so he would go to the local market And he would write a check to get some food, but he knew he didn't have money in his bank account to meet that check. He said, God, I'm trusting you to fill my bank account, but I have to feed these children. And over and over again, God would fill that bank account. And the children would be filled and no longer hungry. He was saying in the end of his life, in everything we do for God, we should always have some God room. You see, he said, here we have the problem, the need. Here's our resources over here. Everything in between is God room. And the question is, do we have room for God? Do we allow him to step in the middle of that? I'm old. 
Well, if you're going to live in that and not allow any room for the God who created you, the God who created the world, the God who keeps his covenant, if you're not going to allow God room, then you're going to stay stuck in your unbelief in your doubts. And he doesn't want us to stay stuck there. Here's the deal, gang. The Lord understands our doubts. We wrestle. We struggle. But again, he doesn't want us to stay in that place. He wants us to seek after truth, and especially about who he is. Rene Descartes said this, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it's necessary that at least once in your life you doubt and as far as possible, all things. That you're doubting, but you're seeking truth. You see, doubt can actually be good if it leads you to seeking after truth. What's really true in this situation? I'm struggling with doubt a little bit. What's true? Well, here's what's true about God. God is faithful. God is good. He is trustworthy. God keeps his promises. He is a covenant God. God remembers his oath. Elizabeth. Zachariah. And John will be that child of grace. So in the middle of that, when we seek truth and we learn about God, we can step into the Red Sea. Yeah, we have some fear and we have some doubt, but that is overwhelmed with God's God-given faith to us. Confident in who God is. I want you to talk about that in your home groups. Where is God calling you to trust him, to step out in faith? Where are you doubting right now and you're just wrestling and maybe you feel stuck there? Why don't you get your growth groups, your home group, to pray over you? Lord, give our friend faith. And that's what I think we do. I think we go before the Lord like the the father whose child was filled with spirits And he goes before Jesus, if you can do anything, have pity on us. And Jesus said in Mark 9, Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I love this response. The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That should be our prayer. God knows we struggle with doubt unbelief but we go to the God who keeps his oath his covenant God who nothing is impossible with him and we say God here help me in my unbelief I don't want to stay stuck here saying I'm just old this will never happen even in your doubts come to the table and receive the food of faith Like a good Greek, take these plates of doubt, these dishes of doubt, and smash them against the wall and receive faith from the Lord. I love the last part of this chapter. It's just God's amazing love. At this Valentine's Day, listen to God's amazing love. That God is doing a wonderful work with Elizabeth's heart. Blessed with grace and favor. Verse 25, she became pregnant. The Lord has done for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor. And look at this. Ah, Feel the humanity of this. And he has taken away.
disgrace among the people. When you come to the table, Jesus takes away your shame. He turns disgrace into delight. He brings restoration and renewal. Even in our lack of understanding, do you understand he meets us right there? He sits with us at this table. He's inviting you. He's taking your unbelief and he's turning that into a beautiful faith that we become believing in him. The invitation is for all. Come to the table. Sit with Jesus. Here's your chair. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your good word this morning. May we come to the table receiving you. May we come to the table hearing your voice. May we believe, Father, all that you said is true. You are God who keeps your covenant, your oath, who remembers. And we thank you that you have invited all of us to your table to have relationship with you, Jesus. In your beautiful and precious name, amen. Well, we get to actually come to the table in communion this morning. And one of the things that's so wonderful about communion, and one of the things that we've been studying in this passage, the end of the Old Testament, do you know the last word in the Old Testament that we get out of Malachi? The last word is this, curse, curse. That's what we're looking for. Then 400 years of silence. Oh, my goodness. And then the last chapter in the New Testament, in Revelation 22, what does it say? There will be no longer any curse. And the final statement of the New Testament is this. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be upon his people. How do you go from curse to grace the pure lamb of God Jesus let's come to his table in grace and the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed he took the bread and that he had given and when he had given thanks he broke the bread and he said this is my body which is for you take this in remembrance of me. Christ's body broken for you and me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ's blood shed for you and me.